welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is, and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible, and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at the mysterious hijacking by Dan Cooper on the 50th anniversary of the crime. On the 24th of November, 1971, a man entered Portland International Airport. He introduced himself as Dan Cooper and purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle-Tacoma Airport for $20. His assigned seat was 18C on the 4.35pm flight. The plane carried 36 passengers, not including the crew. A middle-aged white male with no discernible accent draws almost no attention boarding a commercial flight, so nobody was suspicious as he took his seat. When the plane was in the air, Cooper handed Florence Schaffner, one of the flight attendants, a note. At the time, it was common for men travelling alone to slip notes to the flight attendants with phone numbers or hotel room numbers on them for whatever reason, and Schaffner just pocketed the note. When she passed Cooper again, he beckoned her over. As she leaned over to see what he wanted, he told her that she should read the note. He told her he had a bomb and nodded at his suitcase. Schaffner went to the galley and read the note, showing it to her attendant partner, Tina Mucklow. Together, they went to the cockpit and showed the pilot. After reading the note, he immediately called air traffic control. They contacted Seattle police, who contacted the FBI. The FBI called Donald Nyrop, the airline's president, who said they had to comply with Cooper's demands. Cooper told Schaffner to return the note, worried about incriminating evidence. Because the note was returned, nobody really knows what it said. Schaffner, one of the few people to see the note, remembered a handwritten note demanding $200,000 in cash and two parachutes. These things were to be delivered on arrival to Seattle-Tacoma Airport, and if the demands weren't complied with, he would blow up the plane. Everyone who read the note agreed that it contained the phrase, no funny business. Cooper moved seats so he was sat next to the window. Schaffner, on her return, sat in the aisle seat. The suitcase was opened enough that Schaffner could see wires and two cylinders, possibly dynamite sticks. Cooper told Schaffner to go to the cockpit and tell the pilot to stay in the air until the money and parachutes were prepared. The pilot announced that the plane would circle before landing because there was a mechanical problem. Because of this announcement, most passengers were unaware that the plane had been hijacked at all. Cooper's demands were very specific. He had asked for $200,000 in $20 bills. 
He had asked for $200,000 in $20 bills, which would weigh around 21 pounds. Any smaller bills would add extra weight, causing his plan to skydive to become dangerous. Larger bills would have weighed less, but would be difficult to get rid of later. He even went as far as to specify that the serial numbers of the bills were randomised and non-sequential. The FBI gave Cooper random bills, but made sure that every one began with the letter L. The moneyer was easier to get hold of than the parachutes. Tacoma's McCord Air Force Base offered the parachutes, but Cooper rejected them. Military-issued parachutes don't have user-operated ripcords, and he wanted those. Seattle police managed to find a skydiving school and contacted the owner. His school was closed, but he sold the police four parachutes. The note Schaffner had received didn't directly explain Cooper's plan to skydive from the plane, but the demand for the parachutes led to the assumption that he would. The initial plan was to give Cooper dummy parachutes, but since he asked for two, they were worried that he would take a hostage with him. Nobody wanted to risk it if there was another life at risk. At 5.24pm, less than an hour after the plane had taken off, the team on the ground had the money and the parachutes ready. They radioed the captain to tell them that they were ready. Cooper told them that they needed to be in a remote place when they landed, that the cabin lights needed to be dimmed and that no vehicle should approach the plane. He also demanded that the person bringing the cash and parachutes was to be alone when they came. An employee from the airline drove a company car closer to the plane and Cooper ordered Mucklow to lower the plane's stairs. The employee outside carried the parachutes over and gave them to Mucklow, then returned with the cash in the large bag. When the money had been handed over, Cooper allowed the passengers and Schaffner off the plane. Mucklow and the rest of the crew had to remain. An official from the Federal Aviation Administration contacted the captain and asked if Cooper would let him come aboard. He only wanted to warn him of the dangers and consequences of air piracy. Cooper denied the request. Instead, he had Mucklow read over the instructions for the aft stairs of the plane. When questioned about them, she said she didn't think they would open mid-flight. Cooper told her she was wrong. Cooper seemed to know a lot about the plane he was on. It was a Boeing 727-100. He ordered the pilot to stay below 10,000 feet and slower than 150 knots. Experienced skydivers would easily be able to skydive at 150 knots. The plane was light enough to have no problem flying at those restraints either. Cooper directed the pilot to fly to Mexico City. The pilot told him that the plane travelling at the restraints Cooper had demanded would mean that it couldn't fly any more than 1,000 miles, even with 52,000 gallons of fuel. They agreed to refuel in Reno, Nevada. Before leaving Seattle,
Cooper demanded that the plane be refueled. He knew how much fuel the plane would intake during a minute. It's 4,000 gallons. When the plane wasn't refueled in 15 minutes, Cooper demanded to know why. The crew finished refueling soon afterwards. Together, the captain and Cooper decided on a route called Vector 23. This would allow the plane to fly at the requested altitude, but avoid some mountains on the way. The next step was for the captain to depressurize the cabin. At 10,000 feet, a person can breathe normally, and if the pressure is the same in the plane as it is outside, there isn't that violent gust of wind if the door opens and the stairs lower. The plane took off at 7.46pm. After takeoff, Cooper told the crew to stay in the cockpit. At the time, there was no peephole in the door or remote cameras installed in the plane, so nobody knew what Cooper could be doing. At 8pm, the pilot asked Cooper over the intercom if there was anything they could do for him. Cooper responded with an angry no. That was the last word Cooper would ever say to the crew. At 8.24pm, the plane genuflected, lowering briefly as the nose dipped and then the tail dipped. The pilot noted the location, 25 miles north of Portland, near the Lewis River. The crew guessed that Cooper had jumped, but didn't go out to confirm it because they were scared of the consequences of disobeying his order to stay in the cockpit, especially if their guess was wrong. The plane landed in Reno at 10.15pm. The pilot spoke over the intercom first to find out what Cooper wanted, but when he received no response, the cockpit door was opened. The cabin was empty, aside from a single parachute. Cooper had left and taken the money. Nobody knows what happened to Dan Cooper. Every investigation so far has failed to prove anything. During the plane's hijacking, the police tried to follow the plane and wait for someone to jump. They originally used F-106 fighter jets to follow, but they're built to go at high speeds and aren't much use at lower speeds. Instead, the police decided to get help from the Air National Guard and their Lockheed T-33, but didn't catch up to the plane before Cooper jumped. Poor weather prevented the police from investigating the area that Cooper jumped from until the next day, which was Thanksgiving 1971. That day and weeks afterwards, an extensive search took place, but failed to find any evidence of a parachute or Cooper. Instead, the police turned their attention to the name. They searched criminal records for anyone named Dan Cooper in the case that the hijacker had used his own name, but turned up nothing. A search for D.B. Cooper showed a record in Oregon, who instantly became a possible subject. He was quickly cleared, but a member of the press mistakenly put his name instead of Dan Cooper in a report, and the mistake was repeated until Dan Cooper was only known as D.B. Cooper. Charges for air piracy were filed in 1976 and still stand to this day. In February 1980, 
an eight-year-old boy found bundles of $20 bills in the Columbia River. The serial numbers matched the ones from Cooper's stash. This led to new searches in the area. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted, possibly destroying any remaining evidence left behind by Dan Cooper. Years went by with no word from Cooper. Anyone who confessed to the crime had their fingerprints taken and tested against the fingerprints taken from the plane on the night of the hijacking. So far, none have matched. In August 2011, Marla Cooper claimed that Dan Cooper was her uncle, L.D. Cooper. She said she had overheard a conversation where her uncle said their money problems were over and that he had hijacked a plane. As of July 2016, the FBI have stopped allocating active resources to the investigation, but the identity of Dan Cooper is still a mystery. There are a few theories on the truth of Dan Cooper. They begin in 1980 with the discovery of the $20 bills in the Columbia River. As the leading theory, most believe that their evidence that Cooper didn't survive the jump. Without any more evidence, it's difficult to say whether that's true or not. Marla Cooper's claim that it was her uncle is an odd theory The theory seems like the most likely at face value. However, Marla contradicts her own story of her uncle saying the money problems are over by also saying that he lost the money during the jump. The weird part is that one of the two flight attendants identified L.D. Cooper as looking like Dan Cooper. It's possible he was the hijacker because the facts line up. It's also possible that Marla is covering for her uncle. One of the original theories was that Dan Cooper was a professional skydiver. This has been disregarded since. Cooper's knowledge of the plane was incredible, but the fact that he jumped in such terrible conditions into the wilderness of the state of Washington in just a suit seems like a poor decision from a professional skydiver. In August 2021, Edward Helmore wrote an article for The Guardian telling the story of Eric Ulis. Ulis had travelled out to the spot where the bag of money had been found in 1980 to begin a search for the parachute and any more money that could be found. He covered 600 square feet, around 50 feet away from where the money was found. Ulis theorised that the police were just looking in the wrong place for Cooper's drop zone. Without buying his book, Sky Ghost, I can't tell what he found in his search. However, since there's no big news reports about Cooper's true identity, I guess he didn't solve the mystery. Another theory also can't be proved. One of the main suspects in the case died on the 8th of January 2021. The Independent reported that the man was named Sheridan Peterson, but offers no more information. Surprisingly, a Google Scholar search offers nothing new to the mystery, 
There are no theories, but I did learn that there are a lot of articles by someone named D.B. Cooper, probably no relation. In 1971, a man named Dan Cooper managed to escape the FBI with $200,000 by jumping out of a plane in bad weather. To this day, nobody knows whether he survived or what happened to all of the money. This mystery remains unsolved and has a big question mark above it. The story from today's episode came from crimemuseum.org. The theories came from crimemuseum.org, The Guardian UK and The Independent UK. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, you can currently find me on Facebook at What The Heck Mystery Podcast, Instagram at WT Heck Podcast, and you can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash What The Heck Podcast. Just £3 a month will get you access to the unedited versions of the episodes so you can hear all the mess-ups I make while I'm recording. I would have made it lower, but the tiers begin at £3, so that was the lowest I could go. More tiers will be added as we go, and as I find more things to share with you outside of the episodes. If you want to pledge more than £3 a month, you're more than welcome to, and I'll have to find something extra special for anyone who does. I've also set up an email address, whattheheckpod3 at gmail.com. I'd like you to send in your stories of the unexplained so I can read them out in secondary episodes. But if you have any issues with the phrasing or think some of the things that I've said are insensitive, please don't be afraid to let me know and I'll address them in episodes as I record them. (laughs) 